This is what the Lord says to his church today through the inspired psalmist. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not see. But understand, all dwellers of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches men knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of men, that they are by a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble, until a peak is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot sleeps, your steadfast love, O Lord, help me out. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who bring injustice by statute? They bend together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back from them their iniquity and wipe them out of their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. God spoken to us today for our let's pray Father we tremble at the sight of your vengeance and justice and righteousness in Psalm 94 and yet we also rejoice Father that you have poured out your vengeance on the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf and so Father we pray that today we may hear your word and be encouraged to look to Jesus by faith, to walk by faith in him, trusting God that in him you have shown us your steadfast love. Father, I pray that today you will encourage those who need encouragement, that you will comfort those who need comfort, that you will save those who need salvation. And Father, we pray that you will build up your church on your word. We ask this in Thanks for the glory of Christ. Amen. I would like to start this morning by asking you a question. Are you embarrassed to know that the Lord is a God of vengeance? Does it make you uncomfortable? 
to read out loud that God indeed replaced the crowd what they deserved. Does it make you feel embarrassed or uncomfortable to read Psalm 94 out loud this morning? The fact is, friends, that people, including you and I, are not naturally inclined to seek God as a God of judgment or vengeance. There are some who deny the existence of God altogether, to be sure, but there are many more who believe in some kind of God, making to be a God who has no interest in actually holding people accountable for their sin. We, friends, are inclined to think that judgment makes God an arbitrary, unreasonable, and impulsive God. That's our natural inclination. But friends, Psalm 94 this morning shows us that without God's vengeance on the wicked, there's actually no place for His mercy either. Apart from God's commitment to uphold righteousness and justice, His covenant-keeping grace fails, friends. And so do all His promises that rest on it. This is actually what Paul is getting at in Romans 9, if you remember that chapter. When Paul writes that, God, he says, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So you see, friends, if, if you want to know the riches of God's mercy, according to Paul, you must know the riches of God's justice also. And that's what we see in Psalm 94 this morning. Psalm 94 shows us two truths about God that I think are essential to the display of His glory in the salvation of His people. Two truths about God that are central to His covenant faithfulness to His people. So first, in verses 1 through 15, we see that the Lord is a God of vengeance. And second, in verses 16 through 23, we see that the Lord is a God of steadfast love. And most importantly, friends, I want us to see that these two truths about God are not inconsistent with one another, but rather that one supports the other. The one supports the other. So first we see in verses 1 15 that the Lord is a God of vengeance. If you notice, the psalmist starts in verse 1 with a petition for God to reveal His glory to His people. So Israel's present situation threatens to cloud what is true about God, and therefore, it threatens their faith in Him. Look there with me in verse 1, where the psalmist pleads with God that He may shine forth in His vengeance on the wicked. Now, friends, this language of shining forth comes from Israel's experience of God's glory when He gave them His law at Mount Sinai, when God revealed Himself to His people in the thunder and in the fire. Do you remember Mount Sinai? This is how Moses speaks of that event in Deuteronomy chapter 33. This is what Moses says about it. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us, he shone forth from Mount Haran. So you see, Moses compares God's glory or 
of the rebuilding of his glory to Israel, he compares it to the dawning of a new day, or to the shining of the sun in the morning. This language of shining forth is also used in the Aaronic blessing in Deuteronomy 6.24, which probably some of you know it by memory. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make what? His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. So you see the idea of God's shining forth expresses the desire for God to rise up like the sun and to show himself as a God of grace in the fullness of his blessing. So when the psalmist asks God in verse 1 to shine forth, he is actually asking him to reveal his glory and grace to his people. But he goes on in verse 2 and asks God to shine forth specifically in his vengeance on the proud. Look there with me in verse 2. The psalmist asks the Lord to rise up as the judge of the earth and to repay the proud what they deserve. And I hope, for, uh, friends, that you see the, the connection there. In the mind of the psalmist, God's grace on his people and God's judgment on the proud are one and the same. They're one and the same. As the preacher Spurgeon, Spurgeon says, it is the same sun which melts the wax that also hardens the clay. God's Glory is gracious to one, but vengeful to the other. Now, I, I think an important question for us to ask of ourselves at this point is this. Is the psalmist being presumptuous? Can we presume to tell God to judge the proud? And the answer, friends, is no. We cannot and should not presume on the judgment of God. But we can trust, as the psalmist does here, we can trust the character of God and bank our lives on His promises. You see, friends, that the psalmist is lamenting his present situation and petitioning God to remain true to His promises of salvation. So he is not being presumptuous, but walking by faith in what he knows to be true about God. It's not being presumptuous, but walking by faith. And I think it is also important to notice that the psalmist is not asking God to be capricious, but to actually repay, he says, the proud for what they deserve. He explains in verses 3 through 7 why the proud deserve God's vengeance. He, he appeals to God with strong evidence, I guess. Look there with me in verse 3. We see that the proud are evildoers. They are wicked, the psalmist says, and they boast about their wickedness. Not only that, but apparently they have been doing this for a long time. How long shall the wicked exult? The psalmist asks. The wicked have become puffed up in verse 4. They pour out their arrogant words. What's more, they have crushed and afflicted God's people, verse 5. They have killed the widow and the sojourner, and they have murdered the fatherless, verse 6. And worse, friends, they boast about this before God. 
they boast about it. Look there with me in verse 7. What do the crowd say? Well, they claim that the Lord does not see, that the God of Jacob does not perceive. In other words, they claim that God has turned his back on their wickedness. You see, their arrogant words are a direct assault against the character of God as a faithful covenant keeper. They are attacking God's character. They are calling it into question. And they also undermine His word. They undermine His word. Remember, friends, that the law in the Old Testament gave special provisions to care for the defenseless. But instead of caring for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, the proud actually killed them. And they boast in the fact that they have broken the law and rejected the word of God. They're doing what the law prohibits against God's provision, and they're boasting about it before God. You see, their boasting is a direct attack against God's, God's character and His Word. So the, the point I'm trying to make here, friends, is what's at stake here? If the wicked are not paid, but continue to exalt themselves in their wickedness and to boast over God, it shows that God is not truly who He says He is. His glory is diminished, friends. So the psalmist's prayer for deliverance is rooted in his desire for God to uphold His glory. My good question for us this morning is, do we, do you, friend, do I, do we treasure God's glory in this way? When we look at the news and we see all the injustices, when we suffer injustice, do we treasure God's glory above ourselves and above our own reputation? And so my prayer this morning for our church is that it may be true about us that we treasure God's glory in Christ above everything else, as the psalmist does. Now you'll notice that treasuring God's glory like that leads to an unshakable confidence in God. Look with me in verses 8 through 11. The psalmist is confident that God will not let the crowd have the final word. He argues with himself that if God created the eye for seeing and the ear for hearing, then surely God's own eyes and ears will see and hear. See the argument? Of course, the psalmist is speaking metaphorically here, but the metaphor teaches us something concrete and true about God. Namely, that God will surely act to save His people. Moreover, the psalmist says, the Lord disciplines and rebukes the nations, and He knows that the thoughts of men are but in breath. So the psalmist is reassuring us that the boasting of the wicked will soon be silenced. They will not have the final word. The nations may rise against God and His people, but the Lord will rebuke them. The thoughts and arrogant words of the proud are but a breath. But the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord remains forever. You see, the proud say that God does not see or perceive. 
But it is they themselves who are dull of heart and foolish in their understanding. The psalmist actually calls them out in verse 8. Understand, he says, understand all of the of people. Fools, when will you be wise? You see, their words are turned on themselves. They are the ones who actually cannot see nor perceive the true character and nature of God. And please, friends, notice here that in, in calling out their foolishness, God is being gracious to the proud and to the wicked. He's being gracious. He is reasoning with them as a father will reason with an unruly child. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Yes, the, the Lord rebukes the proud friends, but he does so that he may teach them knowledge. He is being gracious to them. He is providing for them an opportunity to acknowledge their error and to turn from their ways. So that the very word of judgment against them is a means of grace for them. The word of judgment is a means of grace. The proud have no excuse. They deserve the fury of God Almighty. And yet, He still calls them to understand. This is marvelous. This is marvelous and patient grace, friends. But God's discipline and instruction is also a means of grace for God's people. It's a means of grace for us. Look there in verses 12 through 13. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. You see, the Lord disciplines and rebukes the nations and teaches them knowledge from afar. But he walks with his people and he instructs them from his word. So that we can say that the Lord is near to His people. He is near to us, brothers and sisters. If Psalm 94 teaches us anything, it teaches us to trust that God does indeed see our situation and that He hears our cry for help. Friends, as surely as the sun rises every morning, so God will rise up to save us. As one commentator puts it, there's nothing wrong with the sun, he says. It's just that the night is long. There's nothing wrong with the sun. It's just that the night is long. And perhaps your night has been long, brother or sister. Perhaps your night has been long. But you must know, you must trust that God is near you. And that his all-sustaining and hope-giving word is not far from you in your night. It is not far from you. That is what the psalmist means by God's discipline of the blessed man here in verse 12. In contrast to God's discipline of the nations in verse 11, which he uses to rebuke them, God's discipline of his people is gracious and even comforting to the psalmist. Gracious and comfortable. God's discipline in Psalm 94 is His using of all things 
including our suffering, including cancer, including depression, including injustice. God's discipline is His using of all things for our good, as Paul says in Romans 8. In other words, by comparing God's corrective or rebuking discipline of the nations and God's comforting discipline of His people, the psalmist is saying that God leads His people not with a severe hand of His vengeance, as Craig prayed this morning. But He leads us with the hand of a faithful Father who uses all things for our good. Perhaps we all know this, but some of us might need to be reminded that God's or your suffering this morning, brother and sister, is not God's hand of vengeance upon you. It's not being vengeful on you, but He's being merciful and gracious as He is using all things for your good. And this, friends, leads us to the second truth about God. The Lord our God is not only a God of vengeance, but He is also a God of steadfast love. Steadfast love. Notice the transition or the connection in verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, the Lord will give His people rest from days of trouble until a feet is dark for the wicked. And then the psalmist gives us the reason why He is so confident in this truth. For the Lord, He says in verse 14, will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. And that, brothers and sisters, that is the steadfast love of the Lord. Remember that the steadfast love of God is literally his covenant kindness or faithfulness to his people. How can we know that God will save his people and bring them into rest? Because he is faithful to keep his Promises. He is faithful to keep His promises. He will not forsake His people, but hold them fast in covenant faithfulness and love. But look in verse 15 with me, and we cannot miss this, friends. Look there in verse 15. Essential to God's faithful presence with His people, and essential to His remaining true to His promise not to forsake them, is the restoration of justice so that the upright in heart may follow the Lord. You see, friends, for the Lord not to forsake His people, He must restore justice to the righteous by repaying the proud for their wickedness. It is part of His covenant of faithfulness to us. You cannot have God's rest without Him establishing justice on the earth. In verse 16, though, the, the psalmist shows us what it looks like for the, Lord, for the Lord not to forsake His people. He shows us what that looks like. He asks two rhetorical questions. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? And the answer, friends, is, is the Lord. The Lord. He rises up for His people and stands by them. The Lord our God stands with His people in steadfast love. And by the way, friends, this is what it looks like to preach the gospel to ourselves in times of need. We remind ourselves of God's promises in Christ, 
by asking ourselves these kind of questions and remembering that the Lord always remains true to who He is. That's how we preach the gospel to ourselves and remember God's promises. And God's promises for His people are not merely general promises. No, friends, they are personal to you and me. In verse 17, the psalmist reflects on his personal experience of God's present help for him. He says, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul will soon have lived in the land of silence. You see, the Lord has answered his prayer from verse 1. The Lord has risen up and he has shown forth to save him from death, from the land of silence. Friends, this is the testimony of every believer. It is the testimony of you and I. If the Lord had not been our help, we would have soon lived in the land of silence. So we see the, the stark difference between the wicked in verses 4 to 7, who do not understand the true character of God, and the psalmist's confidence in God in these verses. The psalmist knows God's faithful character, and he understands that his promises are irrevocable. So in his moment of greatest need, he turns to God by embracing and believing his word. Look with me in verses 18, 18 through 19. When I thought my foot sleeps, he says, your steadfast love, O Lord, help me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. So how is the psalmist so sure of God's steadfast love for him, even when the circumstances of his life are so baffling? The answer, friends, is that he knows the word of God. He knows the word of God. God's consolations or comforting promises, that's what the, the language of the prophets is, God's consolations are God's comforting promises. God's consolations work as a balm and joy for his soul in the midst of suffering. The psalmist has so immersed himself in the promises of God that he can say that they cheer his soul. And brothers and sisters, I, I know we make this application often from this pulpit, but I don't think it is never a waste of time for us to remind ourselves that God has provided sufficiently for us in our name, in His Word. God's Word is sufficient to cheer our souls even in the darkest of times. Amen. And that's what it means to build one another up in the faith, is to cheer one another up with the promises of God. These verses also give us an intimate window into the heart and mind of the they help us understand that the prayer at the beginning of the song is not a vindictive appeal to God, but the cry of one whose mind and heart are weighed down by the anxieties and cares of this world. They are the desperate prayer of one reaching out to God to be helped up by Him. And so we can identify ourselves with the psalms this morning. The reality is that we are all well acquainted with the crippling and con 
consuming experience of an anxious mind and a heavy heart armory. Whether it be uncertainties about the future, am I going to take this job in another state or not? Or a relational fracture, you, have, you haven't seen your brother or parents in years, you haven't talked to them in years. Or the crippling experience of hopelessness and depression. Which, why, by the way, if you feel hopeless this morning, just welcome to the pot. You're not alone. The reality is, friends, we, we all know how far our minds and hearts can go into the darkness of fearful and anxious thoughts. So that we think, surely my food is about to sleep. I cannot hold it alone. But friends, it is precisely in those dark moments, it is precisely in those dark moments when the thoughts of your mind and the cares of your heart are too much to bear that the Lord stands by you and shows you His steadfast love. It is precisely in the moment when we can no longer hold on to what we know is true that we realize that God has been holding us fast to Himself all along. But it hasn't been all us holding fast to Him. And we sang, we sang the song this morning. When your fear, or when you fear, your faith will fail. It is Christ who holds you fast. And friends, it is good news to know that God never wastes a single time of darkness in your time. He does not waste a single inch. He uses it all for your good. Finally, the psalmist notes that God has proven his trustworthy character and faithfulness. He knows God's steadfast love and righteous character. Look there in verse 20. He asks, Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. The people of God may be suffering under the unjust rule of their leaders, here in Psalm 94. But the psalmist knows that he can rest in the righteousness and justice of God. He knows that God will shine forth, that He will come to their rescue. He has seen the sun rising up every morning, and he knows for sure God will rise up to save His people. In verse 21, these wicked rulers bend together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But in verse 22, the psalmist puts his hope in the fact that the Lord has become his stronghold. And my God, the rock of my refuge. Brothers and sisters, the steadfast love of God is a refuge and a stronghold for his people during times of trouble. The steadfast love of the Lord is not whimsical, it's not flaky, but strong and mighty. The steadfast love of the Lord is His commitment to uphold the righteous. It is His faithfulness to save His people from death, and it is also His faithfulness to repay the wicked for what they deserve. And friends, it is only it is only knowing God as a God of vengeance that our faith can truly rest in His steadfast law. For as 
we have seen, apart from God's commitment to justice and righteousness, His promises for us fail. We must have both. But now as we come to the end, I hope this question has been in your mind all along. If the steadfast love of God for His people depends on His upholding His justice and righteousness in the destruction of the wicked, then what hope is there for you and me? Right? If His steadfast love and covenant faithfulness depends in Him upholding His righteousness, what hope is there for you and I? Friends, the obvious truth in all of this, I think, is that the wicked is not only the proud and wicked ruler out there, right? But that the wicked are actually here in this room. The wicked is you and I. The wicked is you and me. Preparing for this sermon reminded me of one of the most powerful moments in Corey Tenenbaum's recounting of her experience in the Nazi concentration camp of Ravensburg. Uh, in her recollections, uh, Corrie Ten Boom's write this, As the cold increased, so did the special temptation of concentration camp life. The temptation to think only of oneself. It took a thousand cunning forms, and then she explains how prisoners the concentration camp will skip the line to get gold portions while other prisoners will starve because the food rations will, will not last. The temptation to think only of oneself, it took a thousand cunning forms, she says. Selfishness had a life of its own. And even if it wasn't right, she says, it wasn't so very wrong, was it? Not wrong by sadism murder and the other monstrous evils we saw in Ravensbrück every day. And then she, she writes this. She says, oh, this was the great glory of Satan in that kingdom of his. To display such blatant evil that one could almost believe one's own secret sins did matter. And friends, I, I, I think it is tempting, tempting us to read Psalm 94 this morning with his display of blatant evil and almost believe that one's own secret sins of man. It is tempting to look at the wickedness of the proud and their murder of the defenseless and their boasting over God and, and think, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. But friends, don't forget the secret sins of your heart. Don't forget what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, that we are all under sin, and that we have all turned aside from God, that there is no righteous person, not even one, because the law of God condemns all of us. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we have rejected God's word and boasted him in our pride. We are the wicked. And so friends, if all we are left with this morning is the 
last verse of Psalm 94, we will be hopeless before God's just and righteous vengeance. Yes, God will wipe out the wicked from the earth. He must, actually, in order to uphold His glory. But that is only bad news for you and me, unless God's vengeance and steadfast love can meet in one place without undermining the glory of God. And that is the good news of the gospel, is it not, friends? For now, the righteousness of God has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. God has indeed dealt with our sin by sending His Son, God in the flesh, to die on the cross in place of the wicked. So that God remains, remains just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, friends, at the cross, both the justice and mercy of God are of hell. As the Son of God Himself takes on the vengeance of God that we deserve. It is at the cross that God has shown forth in all His glory and has fully displayed both His vengeance on the wicked and His steadfast covenant love towards His people. It is in the Gospel, friends, that our cries for God to shine forth are finally answered. So let me finish where I began. Are you, are you embarrassed or uncomfortable to know that God is a God of vengeance? You should be. You should be if you were left to your, to your sin. But friends, God has done in Christ what we could not do for ourselves. He did not push our wickedness under the rod, but He actually dealt with it at the cross. It is finished, the Lord says. So instead of being embarrassed or feeling uncomfortable, we should rejoice that God's justice and mercy have been reconciled in the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we look for grace by faith as we rest in His finished work on our behalf. Father, we thank you that your grace is not here. We thank you that you are true to you all. And that you have provided a way for sinners like us to be reconciled to a just God like you, Father. We thank you for your mercy. We ask, Father, that throughout this week, you will be with us, standing with us with your steadfast love, reminding us, Father, of your promises holding fast to us, God, for you are indeed a faithful God who shall set us love to your people. We love you, Father, and we pray this name in Jesus' name.